where's the beef? Where's the crime? Uh, I guess more importantly, where's the investigation? What we do right now, when we investigate something like this, Sandra, I want you to understand that we go to all extremes. You know, we don't quit. You're going to see a lot of me. You're going to see a lot of my partner. You are. We're going to find out everything about you. We're going to find out everything about your husband. We're going to talk to everybody in your neighborhood. We're going to talk to everybody that you're related to. This case ought to scare the hell out of all of you. How did we get to this point? That's the question that I've been asking myself for the last six months. For the last three weeks, we've broken down the key elements of Sandy Melgar's appeal. We began with point of error number one, which claims that the evidence presented at Sandy's trial was not legally sufficient to render a verdict of guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. To put it quite simply, if you take every single element of the state's case at face value and assume that every bit of it is true and accurate, there is still not a shred of evidence that actually connects Sandy to Jim's murder. No DNA, no hair, no blood, no witnesses, nothing incriminating on any computers or phones, nothing. And yet still, the jury convicted. Then we moved on to point of error number two. Mack argues in the brief that the prosecutor violated Sandy's constitutional rights when she used the cross-examination of Rocio Reeb as a platform to, as he put it, slime the Jehovah's Witnesses' faith in front of the jury. According to Mack, this was a clear violation of Texas Rule of Evidence 610, as well as a constitutional violation. Barnett used the cross of this character witness to ask questions like, so you don't respect or acknowledge Christmas, and you don't celebrate the birth of Christ. The entire cross-examination was uncomfortable to even listen to, as I'm sure you remember. Then last week, we covered point of error number three, alleged jury misconduct. There is no question that the misconduct occurred, in my opinion. Although he blew it off as no big deal, the foreman himself admitted in a recent interview that at least one of the jurors did in fact conduct an experiment in the jury room during deliberations. And according to Allison Seacrest's affidavit, a lot more than that went on. Out of the mouths of the jurors themselves, several of them were attempting to tie and untie themselves up with items that were not in evidence. And all of this was discussed during the deliberation process, directly violating the judge's orders. We had jurors crying in the box while the verdict was being read, and one juror stated to the lawyers, after delivering a guilty verdict, that she didn't want to be a juror and only God knows what happened. That discussion led into some pretty disturbing revelations about the actions of the prosecutor, jury foreman, and blood spatter expert in Sandy's case after the trial. And now we have even more reports of the three of them, the dream team, so to speak, 
that were the key players in sending Sandy away to prison for 27 years, all meeting together at the jury foreman's house to watch a recent story about the case on TV. Now, there's nothing illegal about that. The trial was over by then. But just think about the optics of that move for a minute. The prosecutor, the supposedly independent and unbiased expert witness, and the independent and impartial foreman of the jury that all played a huge role in taking away Sandy's freedom are alleged to have met at the foreman's house to have a fucking watch party. Sandy's trial was an absolute debacle. A weak case based solely on speculation was spun and twisted to fit a narrative that didn't even fit the pathetic evidence that was presented. But the question that I'm asking myself today is, how did we get here to begin with? And that is the topic of this episode. The police investigation that led to Sandy Melgar's arrest. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sandy was discovered by Herman Melgar in her closet around 4.45 p.m. on the 23rd of December, 2012. About five hours later, she was in an interrogation room with Detectives Carzal and Doucet. The two detectives tag-teamed Sandy's interview for several hours. An hour-long interview, then a break for her to meet with a polygraph examiner, followed by another hour of intense interrogation. After that, Detective Sean Carazal presented charges to the district attorney. He wanted Sandy arrested for the murder right then and there, before even a single piece of evidence from the crime scene was processed or analyzed. At that point, the DA refused the charges due to a lack of evidence. Lead investigator Carazal promised Sandy during that interrogation that he would leave no stone unturned. You know, something I want you to understand is that what we do when we investigate something like this, Sandra, I want you to understand that we go to all extremes. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't quit. You're going to yeah. see a lot of me. You're going to see a lot of my partner. You are. We're going to find out everything about you. We're going to find out everything about your husband. We're going to talk to everybody in your neighborhood. We're going to talk to everybody that you're related to. We're going to learn everything. But I hope you'll learn somewhere else, too, because it's, it's not me. We're processing this. You're seeing your house, too. Okay? And a whole lot of stuff goes into these things. Okay? It's just so important that you be honest with us. Yeah. It is so important. And, you know, I told you it's protocol that we start close to that victim. That's you. Mm-hmm. That's protocol. Okay, and you know, we didn't just walk into this ball game yesterday, and we can tell a whole lot of stuff by the way that when we start with people, the way they react, the way they act. 
You need to understand that. May not always show. May not always let that be be known to you. But we're no fools. You need to understand that too. So according to Detective Carazal, he's no fool because he knows how important it is to fully investigate the people closest to the victim. He says that Sandy can expect to see a lot of him and his partner, and he promises to talk to everyone she knows. He even gets specific, quote, we're going to talk to everyone you're related to, end quote. It ended up taking a year and a half of investigation for Carazal to build up a strong enough case against Sandy to get charges filed and an indictment from the grand jury. So let's explore how he got there. What changed during those 19 months to swing the scales from not enough evidence to an indictment? Usually in cases like this, meaning cases with no witnesses, no obvious evidence, no apparent motive, the scales tip once the forensic evidence reports are coming in. But in this case, when the DNA results came back from the lab, there was nothing connecting Sandy to Jim's murder. Strike one. Then the forensic reports came back on the couple's cell phones. No affairs, no disturbing searches, no calls or emails to a hitman, nada. Strike two. Then the computers came back from the crime lab. Forensic testing revealed nothing. Just like the phones, there was no evidence of anything that would indicate that Sandy had any plans or reason to kill her husband. Strike three. So on the night that Jim was found, the DA's office determined that there was not enough evidence to charge Sandy with murder. Then all of the forensic reports come back with nothing. Curzal had precisely zero more evidence after the testing was completed than he had before it. So I find myself asking what seems like an obvious question. If there wasn't enough evidence to charge Sandy with the murder on the night of the 23rd of December 2012, and nothing new or incriminating was discovered over the next year and a half, how the hell was she charged with murder? Lucky for us, we have Carzal's promise to leave no stone unturned. Remember, he's no fool. Sandy's going to see a lot of him, and he's going to talk to all of her friends and relatives. Otherwise, according to his own logic, I guess he would be a fool. Here's the reality of the situation. Sandy walked out of the Harris County Sheriff's Department in the early morning hours of Christmas Eve in 2012 and never saw Sean Carazal or Detective Doucet again. And as for the family, Liz reached out to Carazal on the 26th and requested to speak with him, and that was it. The Melgar family all gave statements on the scene that night and never heard from the police again. No investigative interviews whatsoever after Carazal vowed to, quote, talk to everyone you're related to. End quote. Detective Carazal did actually speak to one, exactly one, of Jim's friends, a guy he worked with at the ISD named Carlos Espinoza, over a month after the murder. The interview is about 30 minutes long, and to be honest, it's not terribly interesting. But the detective did ask a few questions about Jim and Sandy's relationship. 
how long have you known uh, Mr. Milkmore? Uh, knew him personally since uh, December 2007. Okay. Yeah, when I came to work at uh, this building, um, our uh, supervisor introduced introduced us, and then uh, he he was uh, sitting next to my my office. Okay. And then that's what it is. And like I told you earlier, I'm Sean Carazel, mm -hmm. Harris County Homicide. Uh, six, my unit number 1642. Um, mm -hmm. I want to kind of. How, how much contact did you have with him? I mean, were y'all work friends? Did you ever go out as friends after work? Um, we never go out as, as uh, friends, but uh, he went to my house and visited like two times, and that's where we uh, he met my family. Okay. And we have a. Uh, an opportunity just to interact, but uh, most of the interaction that we have was uh, uh, on the workplace. Okay. Mm -hmm. well, what kind of his character? What kind of person is he? I can describe him as a person with uh, loyalty and character, uh, being a good friend of whoever he can be friends, uh, with a special uh, sense of humor and. Um, you know, very always positive person thinking in the, in the positive side. I never trying to remember if he was negative sometimes, but not really. And that's many of the characteristics that I have. I was always trying to help everybody else. <clears throat> did he have uh, any other? Did he ever talk about his family at all? Um, most of the time that we have for. Uh, conversations like that, the family would be around lunch hour. Basically, every lunch hour we could have spent, we might discuss many topics, in, including family. Um, I remember conversations about her daughter, and I can say that because my daughter is, uh, has been going through college. His daughter was through college already. My daughter was an interest in the same interest that his daughter had, which was related to health or medical, that kind of thing. So we we spent a lot of time talking about our daughters, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, but wife, not really, uh, wasn't that much. Some conversations, yes, but not that much. And what was uh, what were they talking about as wife? What would come up? <clears throat> um, uh, the only thing that I can just say or remember is that he has concerns about his wife uh, with uh, some medical conditions that he never explicitly uh, explained or mentioned, but it was just some, I would say, uh, my wife has medical issues, or health issues, uh, he would say. And then um, uh, that was probably the only description, but never, oh, and some, some comments about when they meet some friends and they have a dinner on a special occasion, when we when they went on a cruise, several times on a cruise with family, with some friends, and um, uh, good things that he might talk about his wife. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, leading anything uh, like arguing or do you ever hear him talking on the phone, maybe arguing with his wife or anybody else? Another friend or anything like that? 
no, I've been thinking about this all this time that really happened, but I cannot remember he uh, being upset or uh, complaining uh, to other person, not including his wife, not including anybody specific. When was the uh, last time you saw him? The last time that I saw him was uh, on Wednesday, December, I'll say, 15, 16, let me see my calendar was the day that... Like I said, the interview goes on for about 30 minutes, but it's a lot of figuring out schedules and the date that Carlos last saw Jim. Curzel did, however, circle back to Sandy again a few minutes later. And for the people currently working tirelessly on the internet to prove that Sandy wasn't actually sick and her illnesses were all made up, you'll find this next bit interesting. Evidently, Jim must have been in on the plot to pull the wool over everyone's eyes. Now, uh, I can say it about using that, uh, as he told me, one of the main reasons he's interested in this kind of health uh, investigations that we were doing is because he wanna help his wife because she has some health issues, as he said. Did he did he ever get into uh, what exactly what was her what kind of symptoms she had? Um, Well, she, he told me that uh, she has to use um, uh, this, uh, <laughs> my English is like a cane. Yeah. Well, you know, to walk. Yeah. Mm, what do you call this? I know there was in Spanish. <laughs> what would you, how would you say in Spanish? Bastón. Okay. I'm trying to remember. Never, never seen, never used it. You know when you walk. Oh yeah, like a cane. Cane. Okay. Yeah, like it would be the same thing as a cane or a crutch. What do we, what you're saying? I think it's believe it's a yeah. crutch or something like that. Yeah, that's um. In I didn't want to ask more about more details. He says like um, that's the reason. That's what I'm getting into this. So hopefully we can be better. Okay. Uh, I didn't knew his wife personally. Not really contact with her. Uh, not seeing pictures of her. Just the reference that they, how they meet, how you know, since high school and some stories, but good stories like that, like you would expect from a marriage. Um. And there you have it. No stone unturned. Kurzel didn't interview any more of Jim and Sandy's friends or family. Just Carlos, who liked to eat healthy and juice, just like Jim. Let's now walk through the rest of the investigation that led to the charging, indictment, and arrest of Sandy Melgar. We'll start back on the night Jim's body was found. At 6.34 p.m. that night, a deputy Fisher was assigned by Carazal to canvas the homes in the, quote, general area of the scene. His first stop is a neighbor who says he knows the Melgars, last saw them on Friday, and doesn't know if their garage door was up or down the night before. Then the next neighbor, same story, although he couldn't recall the last time he saw the Melgars. Then no answer at the next three stops. Then a Mr. Picard recalls seeing Jim most days when he comes home. 
He described him as friendly and says he hasn't seen Sandy since the neighborhood Halloween party. He's also never seen Sandy use a cane, which was a question the officers were asking of everyone that night. Then a Mrs. Robertson at the next stop has also never seen Sandy use a cane and adds that she has seen her walk up the street without one, which would all be interesting if it weren't for the fact that Carlos says that Jim was always talking to him about how Sandy needed a cane. Then at 7.05 p.m., Deputy Fisher, after devoting a solid 31 minutes to the task of canvassing, relayed that information to Detective Curazal, meaning this was all known before taking Sandy to the station and presenting the charges to the DA, which she denied because of lack of evidence. On the next Friday, Detective Doucet went to the house across the street from the Melgars to retrieve the video footage from their surveillance camera. The camera that Carazal told Sandy during her interview, quote, covered her house pretty well. He even went as far as to say that they know that no one entered the house through the garage because of the camera. I'm sure hopes were high, but as it turned out, the camera only captured the top part of the Esmond's driveway. It didn't even cover the street, much less the Melgar's home. And we have pretty much the same story with the camera from the house behind Jim and Sandy's. On that same day, Doucet picked up that video footage. The camera covered the neighbor's backyard and only a very small back corner of the Melgar's yard. So, no help there either. Then we jump back into Carazal's report. On the 26th, after meeting with Liz, he and Doucet went to the CVS to check for surveillance footage. The store only had a camera on the inside, and just like Sandy said, it showed Jim walking in alone, buying some mixers, and walking out. And then it was on to Los Cucos. It doesn't appear that Carazal even speaks to anyone here. His report says, quote, I saw no security cameras at this location, end quote. And then for the hat trick, a stop at the Texans liquor store. There was a receipt found at the crime scene for liquor purchased here. And shockingly, the surveillance video showed Jim buying liquor exactly when the receipt said that he did. At this point, it still hasn't occurred to Detective Carazal to visit Herman Melgar and, oh, I don't know, ask him some detailed questions about how he found Sandy and how she was bound, or maybe ask him if his brother had ever given him any indication of any problems with his wife. Instead, we head back to Kelsey Meadows' court. Here we have a return trip to the Robertson's house. Mrs. Robertson, you'll remember, was already interviewed on the night Jim's body was found, but always doing his due diligence, Carazal approached her for a second time. This time, Mrs. Robertson added that oftentimes the Melgar's dogs would bark at night and keep her awake. But on the night of the murder, she doesn't recall hearing them bark. And if you're keeping track, at this point, still no follow-up interview with the Melgar's and no more interviews with any other friends or family. Then, a real lead comes in. Finally, a launching point for the investigation. 4.41 p.m. on Friday the 28th, Carazal was advised that news personnel who were at the scene of the night Jim's body was found, quote, saw a male identified as, I'm going to call him Randy, arrive on the scene. Randy told them that he lived around there. The news reporter stated that he acted strange, end quote. Carazal decides to look into Randy and finds that he has a criminal record and was just released from jail two days before the murder. He then checks Randy out in the Leeds database. Leeds is a computer database for pawn shops, if I understand it correctly. Now, keep in mind here that if it wasn't Sandy who killed Jim, then it was a home invasion. 
a home invasion carried out by people who stole items like a small TV, a DVD player, an Xbox, some jewelry, tools, and Xbox games. So Carazal checks in leads and finds that not his real name Randy has, quote, several listings of items that he's pawned. The last item he pawned was on December 11th, and he was arrested on the 20th for stealing tools. Considering this guy's criminal record, the fact that he lives just down the street, and the fact that he was noted to be at the crime scene that night and acting strangely, Carazal sprung to action and went right to his house to interview Randy. At 2 p.m., Carazal knocks on Randy's door. No answer. Then again at 4 p.m., he knocks again, and still no answer. So, he left his business card with full confidence that if Randy did happen to be involved in Jim's murder, he would surely call him back. Randy, of course, never made that call, and Carazal never made another attempt to contact him. Too bad Sandy didn't think of that. Just ignore the police, and they'll go away. In mid-January, Sandy retained attorney Nick Oasey to represent her. Oasey then hired a private investigator to try to do what the police weren't doing find Jim's killer. Throughout the month of January, Sandy's attorney was emailing Carazal with updates on the case and with information about possible suspects. We're going to get into alternate suspects later, and yes, we'll be circling back around to Randy as well. But today, I want to talk about a note found at the end of Carazal's supplement number 28. It reads as follows. Attorney Nick Oasey emailed information with possible suspect information and information on his client Sandra Melgar during his interview with her. Bits of Sandra Melgar's memory returned, and she remembered being tied up and seeing a young Hispanic female in her early to mid-twenties looking at the person tying her up. The female had short hair pulled back, wearing a red blouse, with black winter scarf around her neck. When I first spoke to Jim and Sandy's daughter Liz on the phone, over six months ago now, I asked her if her mom remembered anything about the night Jim was killed. Liz told me that she did, in fact. She said that on the night that she was found, she was recovering from what she believes was a seizure. She hadn't eaten for 24 hours, she was dehydrated, hadn't had any of her medications, and of course, she was in shock over just finding out that her husband had been murdered. Everything was fuzzy for Sandy that night. But as time went on things started coming back to her. Liz told me about how her mother woke up one night having a dream. She was screaming and panicking, and when she awoke, she told Liz that she remembered something from that night. She remembered laying on the closet floor, on her stomach. She could feel someone manipulating her arms behind her and felt what she thought was a knee on her back. Sandy told Liz that she remembered looking up and seeing a young Hispanic woman standing in the bathroom looking at her. I've only ever heard this story secondhand, from Liz. So when I had Sandy on the phone a couple weeks ago, I did what Carazal never bothered to do. I asked her about it. I remember seeing a girl standing right outside the closet door. I was face down while they were tying my arms behind my back. And I remember looking up just for a second and seeing her. But I got that confused, I guess, with when they arrived. 
with Herman uh, and Maria because I was upset that she was looking at me kind of weird, or not me, but looking weird, like she was, I don't know, disturbed or put out or something like that. And so I asked uh, Marissa, who was that? Because I thought she had come with Marissa. Uh, sometimes Marissa and Monica, when they'd come over, they'd bring a friend or something like that. So I thought we brought this friend, because she was a young girl. And uh, she said, we didn't bring anyone. And when she said that, um, I kept thinking about it, kept thinking about it like, that's strange. You know, I know I saw that girl there. And eventually it, it came to me that that girl was there when they were first tying me up. Because I was in the exact same position pretty much when they were tying me up as when they were untying me, you know, with my head in the doorway. So when was it that you mentioned that to Marissa and asked her about the book? Was that like right after or did it come to you days or weeks later? No, that was a, a few days later. We went, all of us went to get together at Herman's house. Jim's mom was there. Everybody was there. And that's when I, I went and I asked her that. We were just all sitting around talking and, and uh, I asked her and she, uh, she told me no one came. So I didn't think to her at the time, but then I kept thinking about it. And about, I don't know, I think maybe another week passed before I realized that that happened. When that happened. And I told Elizabeth about it. So it wasn't necessarily that you didn't remember all that time. It just, so you, you remembered that happening, but you were con- you think you were confusing it the whole time with when they came to let you out. Right. Exactly. Wow. When Sandy told me about how she had confused her attackers tying her up with Herman and Maria untying her, I was shocked. Admittedly, when I first heard the story, I didn't give it a whole lot of thought. It wasn't that I didn't believe Liz or Sandy for that matter. My concern was, what could this do? For anyone who already believes that Sandy was guilty the story wouldn't hold any weight. A week after the murder, she suddenly remembers that she saw a woman in her bathroom while she was being tied up. No one would buy that. Now, granted, you can apply that logic to social media warriors, but there is absolutely no excuse for the detectives to have not at least followed up on this. But in any case, I heard Sandy in a recent interview say that it wasn't that she didn't remember the woman in the bathroom on the night she was found in the closet. She was just confusing it with the time when she was being untied. When I pressed Sandy further, she's now told me that the first time she saw Marissa after that night, she asked her about who the woman was. And that is something that can be corroborated. After having this conversation with Sandy, the next thing I did was call Liz. I wanted her to tell me again how all of this went down. You told me once before that there was a time when your mom, she had like a dream and then she told you she kind of she remembered again that there was a woman uh, that she saw in the bathroom as she was having her arms tied up behind her back. Can you can you remind me again of how that went down? We were staying at my mom's cousin's house and uh, she'd already gone to sleep for the night, but she started having a nightmare and she was screaming in her sleep. So I went over there to wake her up and um, you know, I just wanted to talk to her and figure out what it was that she was dreaming about. I thought maybe if she talked about it a little bit, you know, she could kind of calm her mom, her mind down a bit. 
but yeah, that's just what led to the discussion of um, her seeing the girl that night after she had been hit her in the head and laid face down in the closet while somebody was tying her up. And then was it you or her that then uh, notified the lawyer about that or told the police? I believe that I was the one that um, emailed uh, the first lawyer, and he was the one that went to the police on our behalf. Okay. Do you know if there was ever any follow-up done by the police on that? Um, as far as I know, no, they, they didn't follow anything up. And so, because she gave a, a pretty detailed description of the woman she saw, right? Yeah. Okay. Now, now, do you also remember, she told me something. Do you ever recall her her having a conversation like around a dinner table or something where she asked your cousin Marissa if she had anybody with her on the night that they came and found her in the closet? Yeah, so, you know, maybe a day or two after after I got home to back to Texas, uh, we went to Marissa's house, and we were just spending some time together there as a family. And we were all sitting around the dining table, and she asked Marissa if she had brought any friends with her that day. Okay, and did, did Marissa have any friends with her that day, or, or how did that conversation go on from there? Yeah, my mom just asked her, you know, if she had brought anybody with her, and Marissa kind of looked a bit confused and said no, and that was pretty much the end of it. Um, you know, I could tell my mom was trying to process something, but I think the conversation just sort of moved on from there. So Liz corroborated the conversation with Marissa. She was there and witnessed it, but I still wanted to hear the story firsthand. If Marissa herself remembers Sandy asking her about the mystery woman in the bathroom, then I think that this could be an incredibly important lead. Remember that we've already discovered other similar home invasions in Harris County, with multiple offenders, where the occupants were at home and they were tied up in closets. In the Kingwood home invasion that we discussed a few months ago, the witness stated that there were four or five offenders, one of whom was a Hispanic female who was caught by the police while driving the getaway car. I needed to ask Marissa about the conversation that both Liz and Sandy remember happening. Because think about what this means. Two or three days after Sandy is found, the first time she sees Marissa, she asks her about a strange woman that she remembers seeing in the bathroom while she was being tied up in the closet. She didn't go to police with this. She didn't tell this story during her interrogation. And according to her, she didn't even try to convince Marissa or the rest of the family that she was remembering one of the offenders who broke into their house and killed Jim meaning she has no motive for lying to Marissa about this. According to Liz, Sandy just seemed confused about the whole situation, which is exactly what Sandy says is going on. I called Marissa directly to see if she remembered the incident. Marissa, shortly after you guys had found uh, your aunt and uncle in their house, you know, and, and mm-hmm. shortly after that, did there ever come a time that you were talking to Sandy, like at a dinner table or over dinner or anything like that, where she mentioned to you or asked you anything about you having a friend with you? Yes, um, she did ask me that. And um, she asked me who my friend was that I had brought over that day that she was found. I was confused by her question because I wasn't really sure what, you know, what friend she was talking about since I didn't have anybody else. You know, I, I hadn't brought a friend over. 
So I, you know, I, of course I just told her, no, you know, there was, there was no friend there. And then she said, well, are you sure? Cause I, you know, I could have swore I saw somebody with you that day, or maybe it was Monica's friend and no, but no, you know, I had to explain to her, no, there was no friend that night. It was just us. So neither you or Monica had anybody with you that night. Right. Right. Yeah. We, we hadn't brought anybody over. Okay. Did she explain at all why she was asking? She's, I asked her why that was, well, first she said, I want to know if your friend is okay after everything that happened. And I asked her what friend. And then she said, Oh, you know, she's, she said that she thought that, you know, we had brought a friend over. And so that's why she was wondering if her friend was okay after seeing, you know, everything that played out that night. But, you know, and I had to assure her that there was nobody there with us. Uh, And so I asked her why, what, you know, why would you, and she, she just kept saying that she thought that she had saw somebody else there other than us that day. Okay, so you guys are sitting there, you're having dinner, she asks you uh, if your friend was okay, you tell her that, you know, there were... There was I said, what friend? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then she explains that she saw yes, a friend so with she, you Yeah, she asked me, yeah, if my friend was okay. And so, yeah, I said that she, um, I asked her what friend, and she said, you know, the friend that you had brought over that night. And I said, well, no, nobody brought anybody over. It was just us. And then she said, oh, well, was it Monica's friend? And I said, no, there was, it wasn't a friend. And so then I asked her why, why was she thinking that we had brought a friend over? And she said that she thought that she had saw somebody else there that night, but I reassured her that it wasn't, it was just us. So Marissa confirmed to me that Sandy did ask her if she had a friend with her on the night that she was found in the closet tied up and Jim was found dead. At this point, I no longer believe that there is any chance that this was just a dream. Sandy saw one of her attackers. She looked her right in the eyes as she was being tied up. Do you recall, if you can kind of think back to that that image that you see, what the girl might have looked like or what she was wearing? Yeah, she was wearing a, a burgundy shirt. Uh, burgundy, like a, kind of like a sweater type. Not really a sweater, but maybe a knit. Uh, and then... She had her hair tied back. She was hysteric. Okay. Did, now, eventually you told your lawyer about that, right? Right. That same night that I called, uh, that same night that I told Elizabeth, she, the next morning she called him and we told him what I remembered. And he called um, the police, the, the detectives, but I don't think they, they believed it. Sandy thinks that Carazal didn't believe her, but did he actually follow up on the lead? That's next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. 
Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on the Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at Truth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.